Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Ball Film Podcast. Today I'm here with Sophia and Margot and we're discussing Twilight. So Sophia, how are you? I'm good today. How are you, Frank? I'm well, thank you very much. And Margot, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing good. I'm excited to talk about Twilight. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I'm very excited to talk about it. I think the genesis of this is that uh, the last episode that Sophia and I did together was on um, films that are often called chick flicks and we discussed Twilight a little bit but we both agreed that it needs a, it needs an episode dedicated to it. Definitely. <laughs> a lot to unpack there. Yeah. So my, my first question um, for both of you starting with you Margot, Team Edward or Team Jacob? Oh, this is very political. <laughs> I think I think in terms of like who's better for Bella I'd say team neither. I'm going to throw that hat into the ring. A personal favourite character out of the two. I'm going to say I'm team Jacob. I'm going to say team Jacob. Yeah. Interesting. Sophia, what about you? Um, I think I'm slightly similar. I think for Bella, I like, I think it is team Edward for Bella. I think that narrative makes sense. But again, personally, I prefer Jacob Miles like more than yeah. Edward. I find Edward a little bit difficult to handle. Jacob's a lot warmer and he seems a lot more fun and less like pained all the time. I think yeah. he'd just be better to be around <laughs> than Edward. I think I, I think I have to agree with that. Jacob is a far better person. He's just yeah. a nice person. Yeah, Whereas, probably. yeah, but I think Edward and Bella are kind of perfect for each other. So it makes more sense <laughs> that way. But yeah. Jacob's nicer. Jacob is so much fun. Besides the imprinting. Besides the imprinting. He's a baby. (laughs) We'll get to that. We'll get to the imprinting controversy. (laughs) I thought I'd ask both of you, um, did you start your entry into the Twilight world with the films or with the books? Books. Books, I think, yeah. I remember reading the books really young. I think I read them too young and being really kind of (laughs) very confused and a little bit kind of booped out by them. And then I think I read them again a couple of years later and really got into it and then the films were really good fantastic how about you oh I I started with the films I had an older sister that read all the books though um so it was like a a... going back (laughs) and having a look oh I mean it was it was a force in my life from a very early age because the books came out um obviously several years before the films so even before I think it was 2008, the first one, the books were very much a huge, huge cultural influence. I think people kind of forget now they think about the films first rather than the books, but it was the books that were huge. It was was kind of after the Harry Potter phenomenon as well of people like queuing at the bookshops. And I think that was like the next kind of thing that could kind of hold, hold its own next to it. Of like this massive hysteria around the topic. And again, it's young adult fiction. It's toying with sort of fantasy ideas. So it's a similar kind of world. Yeah. Well, we were saying as well, like within that whole era of when Twilight was being produced, there's a lot of that kind of um, teen fiction that's quite female based as well. If you look at like Hunger Games and Divergent and then Twilight, like they're all very, like they're kind of similar and there was like the same kind of hype around them. That was really interesting to think about. Yeah, I think Twilight also covers like teenage anxieties in a very particular way. And I think that's why it's so popular, despite its bizarre way of going about it. I think 
like the trope of vampires and like these kids at school who like mm. are ethereal and have so much power over you and being obsessed with this one guy who you think can solve everything like that's such a common feeling yeah and I think that for girls that's that can be quite that can resonate quite strongly yeah um I think that's why it became so popular in the way that like Harry Potter also was a book that covered through the metaphors of like monsters and magic yeah. these very human feelings yeah definitely so, yeah I think it like filled the void that Harry Potter was had left had left and also Harry Potter is very male so I think yeah. Twilight filled the void so for girls yeah. yeah definitely I think that's a very good point I mean Twilight from the very start I think there was a lot of conversation around gender and Twilight I think mm-hmm. in recent years I know there was a Lindsay Ellis video on this exact topic um the point's been made that the backlash against Twilight was so visceral because the backlash against media aimed towards particularly teenage girls there's always a very strong backlash against it for no other yeah. reason really than it's aimed towards teenage girls yeah there was um i read a, an article recently it was about like the demonization of like fandoms and particularly like female fandoms i think it was about one direction and it was how um and i guess it applies here as well about how things that teenage girls really like love and enjoy and are actually suddenly become a really powerful force because they make these things super successful and super popular but like culturally and socially they are kind of deemed as a pejorative and they're slagged off and like they're not seen as anything interesting just and like in spite of being so attractive to so many people yeah I think you're absolutely right I mean if, if you just look at how negative that backlash was originally towards Stephanie Meyer and towards the series it, it's remarkable that a series this kind of I don't want to say silly, but it's it's not like it's trying to be a great political drama or something. It's it's fun entertainment, but it was it was taken so seriously and so negatively by so many people. And it's nice that now, I think particularly with internet culture and social media, people are sort of reviving it a bit and saying, these are fun, just watch them and enjoy yeah. them. Yeah. yeah, and kind of being able to like see past them. And I think also it, it applies to um, Kristen Stewart as well at the time like I remember her getting so much flack everyone found her really annoying she was like really pained they found her character annoying and how she was playing it was annoying um but actually I think if you look back on it and again we were saying this earlier um she kind of almost plays a caricature of the character that you kind of only appreciate with a bit of reflection and perspective but it's really interesting that at the time like everyone found her annoying I really actually remember watching them at home and my dad like stop watching them because he found her so annoying and were just like yeah he thought that she was like a really annoying character and I thought I didn't understand why yeah I think women aren't given a space on screen to be annoying I think that men and male characters often can be like rude or a bit aggressive or a bit just like not very nice but still be given the benefit Mm. of the doubt because they're human yeah and I think that what's interesting I'm not quite sure if this was Stephanie Meisel director's intention with Bella but she she was one of the first female characters who was popular as a character and given such a lot like a big bit a lot of screen time yeah but also was deeply infuriating like yeah. she's not necessarily likable no but yet you still root but for neither her is Edward. no that's the thing and yeah. Edward did not receive half as much criticism yeah. as she did there was definitely backlash but I think it's still interesting that she was given that platform anyway yeah. and they didn't try and make her less annoying no in fact they probably made her more, more annoying, annoying in the films yeah that's true I think that's a very good point and another point I'd make about uh, Bella's character in the film is that 
it's a sort of pulpy, fun, romance, action-adventure saga. You don't necessarily expect the characters to be Shakespearean. No. You know, it's just have some fun with it. They're they're sort of they are teenage characters. Yeah, it's very high school, and then to kind of deem them as needing to be more than that. Yeah, is such an unfair expectation. And she yeah. has a lot of agency as yeah. a woman in the books and film, and I think that that is something that just pisses off people. People. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. And these are films where a lot of the performances are quite exaggerated in one way or another. So Kristen Stewart's really playing the sort of sullen, withdrawn Bella. But if you look at how Michael Sheen plays Arrow in the later films, Mm -hmm. it's one of the most pantomime over the top performances, but it's perfect for the tone of the films. Yeah, it is, truly. And yeah, he, again, I think he's making a caricature of his character. Like, I think pantomime is the right word for it. And because it, it is ridiculous by the end of it like the script and the narrative that I think you really do need to feed into this almost satirical presentation of the story and the plot for it to then become like as effective and interesting yeah I mean I'm convinced that the films are trying to be satire with the with the blue light and making it so like obviously this like huge spectacle piece of like high school dramas yet also made to look like almost David Lynchian but like in such a silly way seeing that it's about vampires and yeah. like teenagers yeah I think that that must be self-aware and I always love the first film so much more because I think it's so funny whereas the last three films become a bit more commercial and take themselves too seriously which I think is why really? we take I think that's why we take Bella seriously because I think they're, they're stupid yeah. in the best possible way but I think they're trying not to be yeah but I think the first film is aware of how bizarre the plot is. I actually think the opposite. Really? I think the first film, and especially I think it's really highlighted by, like you saying, the blue tone filter, the score, like the editing, it's really trying to set itself as like a really high class artsy film. I think they're taking themselves really seriously. And I find the characters less entertaining in the first one because they are so like serious and wrapped up and withdrawn and kind of sullen. But Mm. I think, I agree they get more commercialized the later on they go. But I actually find that they're funnier. Like listening, watching, like I rewatched Breaking the both Breaking Dawns for this podcast, and if you look back, like every time I watch it, it's it's hilarious. Like the script is so ridiculous, mm-hmm. and therefore I think that no way could any Hollywood producer or scriptwriter or director have taken this seriously. In spite of it suddenly becoming a blockbuster, it kind of moves away from this really serious image of high art film to being okay, just another Hollywood teenage kind of blockbuster action film. But I think it does become more satirical. Yeah. I just think the first one's made with irony. I think it's not trying to be high art. I think really, I think that would be an interesting way to make a high art film with yeah. basing it on Twilight. But then I do see your point about Breaking Dawn yeah. just being ridiculous yeah. and the script being ridiculous. But then there are so many films in Hollywood that you think this can't be serious. No. Like Kissing Booth 3. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. Well, I just try to get your perspective on each of the films in turn. So we've talked a little bit about the first one. When did you first watch the first one, both of you? Oh um, God, I can't remember. I think I was quite late to watching the films. Yeah. I think I was maybe like 14. Mm. I think I was, I personally found myself a little bit too young to be wrapped up in yeah. the Twilight Fathers as they came out. Yeah, I wasn't a part of the hysteria yeah. then. Yeah. It's only in the last couple of years that I got into the films. Yeah, I think it was getting older and realizing that they were quite 
well inherently hilarious yeah that I enjoyed them I think the first time I watched it I was quite yeah. bored by it yeah even though I'd read the books I just thought like this is very slow I'm not yeah. really getting into it but then it was like a second rewatch a couple of years ago yeah where I was yeah. like okay this is funny this is great <laughs> <laughs> it, I like that you mentioned the directing and the blue filter and all of this because the person that was chosen to direct the first Twilight film is Catherine Hardwick who before then had made the film 13. I'm just going to read a little bit of the Wikipedia description of 13. It's about a junior high school student in Los Angeles who begins dabbling in substance abuse, sex and crime after being befriended by a troubled classmate. This is an edgy film. This is a really edgy drama um, to have made and then be offered the role of making Twilight. I think that's a very interesting career trajectory for a director. And I think um, the first one might be my favourite just because it feels like they're really trying to polish it as much as they possibly can. It is a very beautiful yeah. film, just in terms of how it looks. Yeah, yeah. the baseball scenes oh and my the thunder, God. like all of it is really well crafted. Like, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a, a, like a central element to the first one that I think doesn't quite get enough praise is just how good the music is. Yes. Um, <laughs> Yo, so good. <laughs> I've got a list up here of the official soundtrack for the first Twilight film. The bands we've got involved here, Muse, Paramore, Linkin Park, Collective Soul, and Iron and Wine. That's an incredible collection of bands to get for one film. Yeah, it's, it's a lineup. Yeah, I listen to that soundtrack religiously. Yeah. It's, it's pretty great. It's really good. I like the soundtrack in New Moon, particularly. I think that one's really listenable. Very kind of contemplative. I you think it's number two. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fake fun. Sorry, there's just so many. New Moon is funny. My favorite scene in that is when Bella's like really upset and they just spin around. Yeah, the room. And then you see like the, the months go outside by. changes. Yeah. And like, she's just staying there. Yeah. And it goes like January, February. February yeah. What was the song playing at that moment? Possibility by Lugali. It's really so good. Yeah, Great it's knowledge really there. Funny. Instant recall of the name of the song. Yeah. Well, see, yes, I told you I like the uh, the score for that one. If I'm right in thinking, New Moon is the one that has Rosalind by Bon Iver and St. Vincent on the soundtrack. Yes, it's fantastic. Exactly. And uh, Meet Me at the Equinox, Death Cab for Cutie. Like, this is good yeah. of its time stuff for the mid-2000s. Yeah, definitely. I think that's what kind of gives it a lot of longevity as well, is that like the school really does provide like a really strong foundation for the films that you can ridicule a lot of other things but actually they really thought about the score and where they wanted it like placed in the movie and there's a reason it was so popular like things don't become popular in a vacuum they no. had a lot of time put into making it good or at least watchable and enjoyable yeah. and it paid off yeah and I don't think it'd have been that popular if it was just inherently like a shit film yeah no I agree Absolutely. I mean, there is a lot to admire and value in these films. I think that the side cast in all of them is pretty stunning. But in the first one particularly, as soon as you get introduced to the world of this school, Anna Kendrick becomes a key supporting <laughs> character. She's great. She's really She's funny. So good. Yeah. Sitting in the dining room. Oh, dining room. Yeah, with the canteen. Yeah, the canteen. I mean, that scene when yeah. they all walk in and she describes them. Yeah, that's Edward. <laughs> they're like the weird matchmaking family. Oh, God, yeah. They are so incesty. <laughs> but then the other character's like, they're step siblings. It's, it's fine. fine. 
Yeah, raised on nineties yeah. films. Yeah, very like very clueless. Yeah, yeah, very, very like deep America, like in the middle of nowhere high school to be. Yeah, it's okay to stay. Famous, yeah, I mean sister. that's definitely an interesting point to raise. Because like, the Mormon is so isolated. The Mormonism yeah. in it. The religious undertones of twilight are quite bizarre yeah very yeah i mean that canteen scene is hilarious for many reasons i think one of them is that does no one just think are these people vampires like they, they walk in they're, they're paler than any other human beings who have ever lived <laughs> it's just strange that no one raises that yeah they're very cold yeah, yeah definitely pretty privilege pretty privilege <laughs> yeah I think one of the most unintentionally hilarious moments in the entire series, and there's a lot of them, is in the first <laughs> film where there's the scene where I can't remember the boy's name, but he's the boy that's into Bella, who isn't Edward. He comes up to her in the car park. Oh, yes. sorry. What's his name? Mike. Mike. He comes up to Bella and he's talking about how he wants to ask her to the prom. Bella says no. But she says, oh, look, Anna Kendrick's interested in you. And Anna Kendrick looks over at him and smiles and waves. And he's like, oh, and he looks disappointed. Yeah. Why? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, her friends at school are really funny. Yeah. And yeah, that whole dynamic of Mike pursuing her and Anna Kendrick being so clearly jealous. But then Jessica, I think, is actually one of the only nice ones that looks yeah. out for her. Like the shopping scene. The shopping scene. And in New Moon, she's aware that something that something's on. up for Bella and like looks down yeah. for her. But classic Hollywood female friendships can't exist. Can't exist. No. It's not allowed. No, 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 no. There was, I think, the leaked um book that Stephanie Meyer wrote that she never finished, where it's Twilight from uh Edward's perspective, and he reads Jessica's mind, and Jessica's sort of consumed with like jealousy and anger towards Bella, if I'm right in thinking. Yeah. Um, well, I think that came out last year. Mid Midnight Sun. Sun. Yeah, the book. Right. I haven't I haven't read it, but I can imagine that she's probably seething on the inside. Like her passive aggressive kind of introduction and friendship is really yeah. bizarre. Yeah, there's definitely an awareness from the start that Jessica was interested yeah. in Edward. Because I think when she introduces him, she's like, he's not interested in anyone, anyone. which is fine. fine. But like, like, I care. Yeah. Obviously yeah. caring yeah. very much. Yeah. And then I think there's there's resentment in the first film. I think when Bella doesn't turn up for one of the events and she's yeah. with Edward and then she comes to prom with yeah. Edward, obviously, like there's definitely looking around competitiveness, which is yeah. so classic for schools. Like, yes. And that's why I love the first one a lot because I think it still managed to, managed to like bring together the high school drama and the human feelings of like jealousy and resentment and like having a crush and being new in town with this bizarre world of vampires. I think yeah. it kind of loses that as it becomes more and more based on the vampire versus werewolf clash and then like yeah. everything else going on. Yeah. And like what- It's so what, high school. What 17 year old is having a very quick birth yeah. Of a vampire but every teenager sees their best friend go out with someone that they have they have a crush oh, on God. despite the fact they're also a vampire like yeah. I just I love that and it's very buffy in that sense yeah that's true absolutely I mean even just the ending of the first twilight film you have 15 step by radiohead leading into decode by paramore which are two of my favorite songs just regardless of anything so seeing a film end that way is fantastic 
Yeah. Wonderful. And then, of, <laughs> and then, of course, New Moon. Now, yeah. we haven't yet talked about several of the most important elements of the series. Uh, the Cullen family, more widely, and Jacob. So I just wanted to get your thoughts. What do you think about the members of the Cullen family? <laughs> That's a huge question. <laughs> um, I think they're hilarious. Camp. They are so camp. So camp. Yeah. It's the weird way that like Bella has more sexual tension <laughs> with like all of the members of the family than with Edward. Like the yeah. scene in in New Moon when, when she cuts her, when she cuts her hand. hand. Yeah. And that's so true. Yeah. Because they're all so like strained from like having yeah. to control themselves because of like and her so being a human. They're so yeah. obsessed with that. It is so weird that they just like let her in. It's very culty. Yeah. Because again in Breaking Dawn when she like transitions and they just like immediately adopt her and they're like all going to die for her. Like it's a very like sudden like, yeah. decided. And then poor Rosalie, like is not here for it. And then she's just kind of peer pressured into yeah liking this girl who wants to become a vampire and she's like this is a really really dumb idea why would you bother yeah kind of right on <laughs> yeah truly yeah but they're great i think they're good i quite like alice yeah emmett never really understood no but he's like the classic kind of toxically masculine yeah overcompensating character yeah jasper's jasper's funny. bizarre so odd yeah. We all know a Jasper. We all know a Jasper. <laughs> Actually, do we? <laughs> I hope not. If you don't, then you are Jasper. You are the Jasper. <laughs> um, how about you, Frank? What do you think of the Collins? I like Alice. I think Alice is cool. She was the one I always liked, like, right mm -hmm. from the off, because psychic characters are always kind of interesting, and she's the one that seems to have the most connection. She's the nicest to Bella, I think, like, straight she's away. She has a lot of agency as well in the movie. Like she's kind of casted as this almost kind of deity figure because she can see the future and stuff. She's so well respected. But I like that she's kind of this powerful female figure and she's not actually a bitch. She's really yeah, quite compassionate and That's true. she kind of goes out of her way to help people and be welcoming and warm, which is really nice. What I do love about most of the members of the Cullen family is that they have these really fascinating backstories that are never properly developed. So like the actual stories of the films will be like, oh, well, you know, we've got to fight these vampires who are coming to get us, so we're going to do this. And you'll just get these snippets of, I used to be a general in the American <laughs> War. You're yes. like, what? What's this story? This could be a film in its own right. Yeah. I think that could be a really interesting, um, like either as a book or kind of like prequel yeah. films, like looking at them. Yeah. Like because. I think Alice is from a mental institute. Yeah. I think I think I remember reading that in the book. I might be really wrong, but I think that's why she can see the future because she was like, I, I mean, in the past, like, you're mad in, woman. Yeah, she was a mad woman. You're put into an institute for anything, really. Yeah. But I think that's a really interesting. I think that could be really interesting. Yeah. And but even I think Carlisle's a bit weird. Carlisle. He's like collecting these people. And it's a protective yeah premise, but it's still bizarre how he is a collection yeah. it's like trying to find them and he is quite obsessive with them in the way yeah. that they're obsessive with bella yeah um and it's like are you protecting yourself or are you protecting Maybe. them yeah because he's casted as like really nice and kind of saintly and he, obviously he's the doctor and yeah. he's got the most like self-restraint and also awareness aren't, aren't the Collins like 
the richest lit literary fictional family. Like really? they, I read somewhere they have like a ridiculous net worth. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, like, I'm not quite sure how or why, but apparently it's just that is a fact about them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> from being a doctor <laughs> in America. Though. The house is very good. The house is great. The settings with are no beds. <laughs> no beds. Yeah. Maybe if America didn't have a private insurance system of healthcare, the Collins wouldn't yeah. be as wealthy. No, exactly. This is true. He's profiting off their. And he pays their blood. Yeah, <laughs> industry. Yeah. There you go. There's already more layers to the series that we're uncovering. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, New Moon's an interesting one because obviously Edward leaves, he goes, he thinks it's too yeah. dangerous for Bella to stay around the family. And so Jacob enters the scene and immediately establishes himself as just a decent human being. Yeah. Bella. 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 <laughs> Line, yeah. best line ever yeah <laughs> no he's he is just like established as this really warm caring mm -hmm. character and he really goes out of his way to look after her I but it's not even like look after in like a patronizing yeah. way like he's actually just a really good friend and it's kind of all you could ever ask of and more than you could ask of anyone yeah. like he goes out of his way to help her and and like i know it's obviously because he's he's the love interest and he's yeah. doing it for his own gain but equally i do think he's really caring and compassionate yeah. And I think Elf Edward is really selfish. Yeah. Like, and I know he's doing it for her, but I don't think it is. He doesn't actually listen to her. No. I think the Black family, like, especially in the first film, are very kind. Mm -hmm. And, like, with Charlie yeah. as well. Doctor they look after own. him and make sure he's okay. And, like, there's a really nice friendship between Blanky on his name, mm -hmm. but charlie and oh the, the dad the dad yeah oh, um, i can't remember his name now but yeah like i think that's quite an interesting way that they've set up the difference between these like warmer werewolf yeah, characters and, and then these cold, very cold harsh vampires i think that was like that was an interesting yeah. way to explore the differences it's very like pack orientated as well yeah and like community-based yeah which is really interesting and they explore like native american history but yeah. not not that not well. well. It's like, a bit problematic. Taylor Lawn is not, not a Native <laughs> American. Native born. No. Um, but, yeah. That is certainly a conversation that I think needs to be had about the representation yeah. in the series. That's something people have brought yeah. up now as being yeah. quite problematic. Um, I thought I'd mention as well, in the second film, coming through on the soundtrack again, Brain Damage by Tom York. This is an original Tom York song <laughs> that plays during the sort of hunting yeah. scene. Yeah, it's when um they go off the yeah. I see, no, when she jumps off the cliff, yeah, like she's yeah, being yeah. chased by Victoria. It's so good. Wow. I didn't know that was original for the film. Yeah, I didn't know that either. But again, it really, really works. It's kind of like angsty hard, yeah. like quite electronic whilst they're running through the woods. And it's so suspenseful. Yeah. And I yeah, great score. Absolutely. And I think it all culminates together um when they get to the end of the film. They go to Italy, they go to Verona. We're getting this sort of Shakespeare literary illusions in here. And we first oh, meet. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the film opens with them reading Romeo and Juliet in the classroom. Oh, of course. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mind blowing. Nuances. Yes. <laughs> Stephanie Myers' mind <laughs> unparalleled. Oh, my unparalleled. God. <laughs> and this is where we meet the Volturi who are going to be the evil vampire group for the rest of the series. Yes, the antagonists. 
headed by the one and only Arrow, Michael Sheen, who I think <laughs> this is a, like a personal favorite performance from pretty much any film for me. It's so over the top. It's so silly, but he's having such fun with it that it's infectious. You can't help but laugh along with it. No, that's the thing. And like, he kind of casts himself as like this really, like he's trying to be warm and welcoming. And it's and like you're saying, it's so pantomime. And it's this idea of this political figure being your friend, but actually yeah. can be so ruthless and cold. Yeah, very Polonius. Yes, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Just but the whole troop as well. They've got um, D- Dakota Fanning is in there as well as Jane. So good. Like, it's a very funny little collection of yeah actors. Yeah, they work well together. They do. I think that having been an avid watcher of behind the scenes moments in films, I remember watching the extra special extras for like oh, all yeah. the films and like they have a great repartee do all they? the cast. They have a lot of fun on set. Oh, I really they like just, that. Yeah, they all seem really friendly. And then obviously like Chris and Stuart and Rob Patton went out with each other. Like, yeah. I think there's a lot of natural chemistry between all of them. Yeah. And I think that's what really saves the film. Yeah. Is the effort made to visually but also like the way that the cast just really do seem to click and there's yeah. a lot of like love and fun it's between quite them. Organic. I think, and the pantomime aspect doesn't, like, extends from Michael Sheen to everyone and they kind mm. of really get into it with him. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree as well. It's a big ensemble piece, those films. They have a yeah. lot of fun. They seem like everyone was just having a whale of a time behind the, behind the scenes, as you say, which I think rubs yeah. off on the performances throughout. One last thing to mention about New Moon before we move on to Eclipse, which I think is just bizarre, is that throughout the film, Bella has these visions of Edward that come to her when she's in danger. And you're left thinking the entire film, oh, this is some kind of vampire power. Edward is communicating with her. It's all in her mind. It's so strange. It's quite Stockholm syndrome Yeah. I'm not, I like, I find, and I find he kind of disrupts her narrative quite a lot. Cause obviously, she's like slowly healing and recovering from him yeah and then he her subconscious like self-sabotages itself and like resurrects him in her mind and then puts herself in danger to see him she is driven mad in the second yeah film. i think it's a the nightmares yeah, it's a weirdly quite perceptive yeah. look at kind of psychosis yes yeah and Stockholm syndrome seems to be the right word yeah. when she just follows blindly like yeah. those guys on the motorbikes like, just feel jumping the danger the it's like she's addicted to him. Yeah. And it's, it's really toxic. Yeah. But it's explored in such a vast way throughout the whole film. Yeah. And she like, between like the depressive episodes and then the kind of manically following people mm. and jumping off cliffs and all these different aspects of how you respond to yeah. such a huge deal trauma. in your life. It's yeah. a trauma. It is. Yeah. I mean, again, it's a darker aspect to the films than I think people might give it credit for that yeah. storyline throughout the second one. Moving on to Eclipse, what are your thoughts on this one? Because a lot of people think it's their favourite. I've heard a lot of talk online from fan groups about how this is the film that gets it right, the perfect mix of laughs and action and comedy and romance. Oh, that's weird. I don't I think don't... I've ever finished it. I think I found that's... it quite... Yeah, mm. between me and my friends at home, it's the one that we, like, yeah. watch the least just because we find it... I think it's because, like, nothing goes on. But then I can see why lots of people would yeah. like that because, actually, it's... Like it's just like a stable movie. It's quite of, contained. It's very contained. Yeah. Whereas like the other ones, there's always something big going on. Like there's a massive yeah. drama. Yeah. But 
especially sandwich between new moon yeah. which is quite erratic yeah and then the last two where just so much happens yeah. all at once yeah it's quite calm yeah but for that reason I kind of don't like it because I quite like the insane nature true. of the other films true I think that's where I think Eclipse of the Love Triangle really comes out because that's mm. where like Jacob and Edward like are really competing but then they have to kind of unify forces to protect Bella yeah which is the whole saviour complex as well a little, yeah. <laughs> it's a bit much but is it your favorite frank then i think my favorite is still the first one but i have a real spot for both one and three i think a lot of it is down to the fact that those are the two films are on the dvd you have the robert pattinson Kristen stewart comedy track uh, commentary track i should say uh, yes. which is <laughs> hilarious because they just point out every single flaw with the film that's so funny. I need to watch the We do. We need to watch the first one. Yeah. It's so good. But I think it's I think it's interesting that they find it funny looking back now. Or like when they were watching it, they found it funny. And like you were saying, like in the behind the scenes, they all seem to go and get on because like today they really ridicule it and try to distance themselves from it. Like particularly Robert Patterson, he really hates his identity being attached to Twilight, which I think is really interesting. There's a lot of interviews with Pattinson from the time where you can just tell he's kind of out of it. There's like a there's a great YouTube compilation of like, you know, Twilight actors, you know, saying how much they hate the Twilight films. I think my favourite quote from those compilations is him saying that it seems like it's the kind of book that should never have been published oh, or like no. wasn't meant to be published or something. Oh. It's so good. But like awful. Awful. He starts describing Stephanie Meyer as mad and he's like, I don't know what she's thinking. Yeah. But I don't think he's wrong. No. I, think <laughs> a bit unhinged. I couldn't find the exact quote, but I'm very convinced that somewhere she's said or written that she thinks that her like power for writing is God given oh and that Lord. she's like almost like a vestibule for like the word of God, God. through twilight. twilight. Oh God. Well, she's so religious, isn't she? The whole Mormon thing. Again, yeah. it's so it really feeds into it. And I think you can see that particularly in the Breaking Dawn ones around yeah. like the whole marriage narrative oh, and the baby. But I just find her stance on this really odd. She's, she is mad. She but is we, mad. We love her for it because she like, made Twilight. Twilight was bored. <laughs> I think it's interesting that you bring Stephanie Meyer's religion into it because before we even get to uh, the Breaking Dawn films, a lot of the relationship between Bella and Edward is, I mean, you know, to, there's no there's no way to get around it. They don't have sex at all. I mean, that is their relationship. Very safe. And like, and he has the whole like courting chivalry. Yeah. And yeah, very bizarre. And the fact he just respects her so, so much that yeah. he can't possibly have sex with her as though those two things, things are, are mutually, mutually exclusive. exclusive. Yeah. And that is kind of a very sort of traditional American Christian thing, you know, mm-hmm. not before marriage. That's the sort of vibe that you get from that interaction between them. Again, Anna Kendrick being the hero that she is, like thinking that she's pregnant. She's like, do you think she's showing? And I think it's Jessica who's like, she's not, she's not pregnant. And she's like, who gets married at 18? And you yeah. really forget that they're 18 because obviously they're being played by like older yeah. characters and this series has been going on for years. Yeah. And then you're 18 getting married in some really expensive house with all your high school classmates with you there. Like who does that? <laughs> it's so bizarre. Of course you would think she's pregnant. Like, yeah. It's really intense. Yeah. 
I think it's, I can't figure out if like it's, oh, I'm not phrasing this well. <laughs> I can't figure out if it's meant to be something that we do relate to or Stephanie Mize does think that is kind of relatable, getting yeah. married that young. Or if we are- true love, yeah. we were meant to be soulmates. Or yeah, it's, it's just so weird that it is included. Yeah. That is a strange element to the films, and I agree that is Stephanie Meyer's sort of religion coming into it and being a little bit strange. I mean, to be honest, I think what's weirder um, in in life is the idea of like a man who's about 120 or however old Robert Pattinson's meant to be sort of lurking around in Bella's bedroom in the first one when she's asleep yeah. rather yeah. than yeah. rather than like a couple just getting together, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I think the the vampires in Twilight as a whole are such a interesting allegory for like chastity and, and mm. restraining yourself because I think vampires and like just the way that they interact with humans through like biting them is such a well, it's, classically it's, it's, a sex it's symbol. Sex, sex symbol and then the fact that like they they have to not mm. eat humans and eat like the deer blood which by the way how many deers exist in forks and they to, <laughs> like are they not driven there instinct <laughs> but um yeah, like I think throughout the whole films, even without the relationship between Bella and Edward, like it's just so clearly sex negative. And yeah. that sex is something that you have to squash down, sexuality is something you have to hide yeah. and be ashamed of. And you can't tell people you must just sit in your like bubble and be seen as the other if yeah. you are having sex or you are a vampire. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's also interesting that the werewolves are seen as such an opposite and being so friendly as though yeah. like they can have sex because they are like complete opposite to vampires yeah. and they're kind of like rural and savage for being mm, warmer and sex. for having yeah. a sexuality. Yeah, that's so interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Mm. I think that, but then also the imprinting kind of works into that yeah. too. It's just kind of like innate, yeah, yeah, kind of forced sexuality yeah. mm. rather than like total repression and isolation from sexuality. It's kind of ingrained into the, DNA or something awful yeah. like the that. Wolfie, the the wolfy thing. <laughs> I think that's a very good point. I mean, you, you, like even in the first film where Edward has to suck Bella's blood because she's been bitten by evil vampire, but he can't go too far with it. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the whole family's there as well. It's, it's really so weird. Like ritualistic. And like the scene in New Moon, I was like, talking about earlier with like Carlisle putting the oh yeah the plaster, the bandit. Oh, yeah. it's like she's it's holding filmed, his chest yeah. very like soft lighting it's quite pornographic it's very soft core it's yeah. bizarre I, it's, it's strange very, it's yeah there's like a sexual undertone throughout all the films but in a very like negative or like teasing way yeah it's it's very strange yeah absolutely this is what happens when someone who's been religiously sexually repressed their whole <laughs> lives decides to write a book. Vampires, <laughs> most sexually charged metaphor yeah. in literature. Yeah. I mean, that that is what vampires tradition. There's, there's a very interesting theory about Marxism and Dracula, where the idea is that like ancient vampire myths, it's always the count. It's always this aristocratic figure living in a castle, preying on working class people and sucking their life force. So it's like a Marxism metaphor as well as a sexual metaphor. That's so interesting. I, like I had to um, study Dracula this year. I wrote an essay on it and there was like some criticism that said um, the that like Dracula preying on Lucy, like the main kind of girl that he always goes back to is actually a 
veil for homosexuality because she's drained from blood every time Dracula feeds on her and she's got these kind of four suitors and each time one of them kind of donates their blood to her to fill her up and like keep her alive and he keeps going back to her and preys on her and actually it's no longer her blood that he's eating he's like consuming the men's blood so she's like a foil for sexuality and like the swapping of like fluids and penetration and it's this mask kind of heterosexuality that's used for homoeroticism I don't know if Twilight quite homoerotic I think in maybe in the pack yeah I guess love triangles often do become a little bit blurred lines between the competition between the two men for the woman's attention how much is is that for each other topless as well yeah but I think the films are and I think this is why they're so popular is that they are so female-centered they are made for women I really think I think it was really interesting that you said that the first film was a female director Mm. so I think that really lends itself to the narrative and how the story is made and like you said that Dirty Dancing was made by a female director and it wouldn't have been the same if it was made by a male director because, you know, it was, it kind of like really captures a very female experience about like, like you said, like sex and like the shots of Patrick Swayze are so tender. Yeah. And I think that lends itself into Twilight as well. That, and I guess like the whole female fan base is particularly. I think there's, there's definitely, definitely a male gaze to Twilight, which is just inescapable from any film. But I do think, especially the first film, like you're seeing things, not necessarily even in like a sexual way, but you're seeing things through a woman's perspective, a young woman's perspective in a way that I just don't think a man could capture it. And I think like, there's a lot of emotion behind behind the camera. And like, you can see in the shots that wouldn't be there if it was a male perspective yeah. I think it's very understanding and that's why it seems so nuanced because it is so nuanced because yeah. they capture all the aspects of the feelings and the drama as well as the like the sex through a woman's perspective is different yeah like women's thoughts on sex it as, as young people we've been socialized in such different ways to think about it that yeah. you couldn't have the same experience yeah that's true I think the camera definitely does linger on the sort of male physique there's definitely this idea of enhancing the sensuality of the the male form throughout the films in a way that you're used to seeing used with women in most mainstream Hollywood films. With these, it's all, as you say, it's always Jacob with his shirt off and it's always Edward's brooding (laughs) face and high cheekbones, you know? I mean, the the third film has maybe my favorite line in the entire series, which is the scene where Bella, Edward and Jacob are all in a tent in this snowy area. They need body heat to keep Bella warm Edward is a vampire, he doesn't have any body heat, and Jacob utters the immortal line, let's face it, I'm hotter than you. So great. But again, the sexual tension there between yeah. them two. Like them Get being, a room, boys. <laughs> being confined to this tiny little tent, and then Bella falls asleep and they have like their little heart-to-heart. And it's, so sweet. But he can also read his mind. Like, he has to watch Jacob, like, fantasise about being with Bella. Yeah. And like he's like, can you keep your thoughts to yourself? And it's just stop looking. It's really, yeah, it's very intense. Yeah. I think it is quite homoerotic. I think that dynamic is definitely. Yeah. And then by the time you get to Breaking Dawn Part One, if I'm right in thinking the opening shot of the film is Jacob storming out of his house in a rainstorm and ripping a girl. Yeah. Yeah, because he gets a marriage invite. Yes. Again, super like primal kind of. Um, yeah and that's why I think the comparison with sort of 
the Native American tribe history is very problematic that they're likened to that yeah. in this kind of savage tribal primal way like yeah. that just seems wrong to try and relate mm. that to American history in that, that way yeah especially when the Cullens have such a oh. opposite like colonial yes. historical background like literally with the confederate yeah of the confederacy of Jake Jasper but um yeah no that's so interesting I think the um the story that they choose to show I think it's an eclipse as well of um uh of like the tribal woman like sacrificing herself against the vampire and then bella mm. recreates it as like this sacrificial mm. woman like kind of a dido character yeah and yeah, giving really herself up again to push that narrative is really interesting absolutely i mean i talked a little bit earlier about how the characters have backstories that are very interesting but not really gone into Breaking Dawn Part 1 might be my favourite example of that because you have Edward saying, oh, by the way, Bella, uh, just before we get married, I used to be a serial killer. Uh, yeah, and she's so not phased. So fine. It's, it's so fine. <laughs> Sick. Yeah, she's like, oh, they would have killed more people than you did. And it's just, no, what are you doing? She's like, do you think this is going to scare me off? Yes, yes it, it should, should do. do. What? Why would it not? Go to school. Go to school, honestly. <laughs> Yeah. And again, to not tell her the night before they get married. It's yeah. so bizarre. I think it is a bit of a fantasy that young people have, though, this idea that, like, your yeah. parents aren't really telling you what to do and that, like, when people tell you you shouldn't love this person, you shouldn't no. hang out with them, like... You can that, fix them. Yeah, like, in all films which revolve around young people, the parents always mysteriously aren't there. They're, mm. they're away on work or they're... They're just mm. not very, they're quite absent figures. And they I think are. in this film, they're definitely quite anti-parent. Yeah. But then also anti-sex, which is like, what What are you striving yeah. for here? Yeah. But isn't, but Charlie's actually has a conversation about, oh, I hope you're using protection. Like really kind of very funny, kind yeah, of classic uncomfortable dad, daughter, dad yeah. unable to talk about it. Yeah. So at least in that sense, he's kind of showing like, concern rather than like a polemic against it yeah I suppose there is concern there but he's not very he's also so not hands-on yeah like he's aware he's not the best no. father figure no. or figure in general he doesn't really stop anything no. happening just sort of lets Bella sit in her room for months on end oh, and goes God. like you get in there yeah go, okay, go sure. shopping with Jessica yeah sounds fun <laughs> yeah <laughs> having nightmares I must say, I love the dad in those films because, like, the most crazy, world-shattering stuff is happening and every single scene with him is like, you're okay, Bella? It's good. Yeah. <laughs> I love Charlie. Yeah, it's so true. <laughs> He's so weird. He's so weird. And there's oh. the scene where Bella says to him, look, Dad, Edward and I haven't had sex yet. And he goes, I like Edward a lot more now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Actually, yeah. maybe, maybe I've ever seen my point, actually, he's not very <laughs> sex positive. Mm. He's also a policeman, which I think is hilarious. Yeah, and he's like, and he's like the, the wedding sharing. as well. He's like, if you hurt her, like, I'll, I, I will be able to find you because I'm a policeman. <laughs> like, I know how to track people. I've got a gun. It's just like, most, Alec. yeah. <laughs> kind of, yeah. But yeah, very weird. Now we've talked a bit about the sort of the the sexual themes of the films and the religious themes of the films. I suppose that kind of comes together in the very awkward dialogue that the film tries to establish on abortion in Breaking Dawn oh. Part One. Yeah, mm, I forgot about that. Yeah, no, it's so 
it, it's really like blunt it's not mm. even like subtly done mm. like because Bella recruits Rosalie to be her kind of protector which again I think is really interesting that she needs to have this foil mm. of like another person to stand her ground but then again her body her choice as it should be but like she I think Alice calls it a fetus and then Rosalie's like say it what it is it's a baby and it's just this whole kind of very weird pushing of this kind of savior complex of a mother very pro-life and like Bella's dying for this baby yeah the religious agenda surrounding abortions in Hollywood is so insane like even films like Juno that like seem very forward thinking she fundamentally doesn't know she keeps the baby because of a pro-life protest outside and I think that it's so rare to see a film not that it does but I mean just so rare in general to see a film that like would suggest an abortion and would go through with it and the way Twilight handles it is so classic yeah but in in such a brutish way of like not even trying to hide it which they're trying to do now but that's probably just a sign of sort of 2012 really yeah which actually is not that long ago so (laughs) it shouldn't be like this a classic classic (laughs) eight years ago (laughs) absolutely i think that is one of the sort of strands of the story that really it didn't it was it didn't look good then and it's aged terribly now looking Mm -hmm. back at it i mean to the point where like people are saying we need to get that there's that quote we need to get that abomination out of you they're talking about the yeah. yeah but then there's a very like pro-life I mean um pro-choice kind of narrative with Edward and Jacob and Carlisle it's very it's very gendered actually and ironically so well in that it's, it's like Rosalie and Bella who are so pro-life and then yeah particularly the men are very pro-choice but I don't know whether that's like a pro-choice narrative or they're just being really defensive of Bella and actually wanting to control her body I think it's more the yeah, control I think that's, thing yeah I can't imagine Stephanie Meyer pushing her yeah <laughs> that classic feminist yeah, <laughs> yeah. self-sexism with those films yeah yeah my take on that was always that Stephanie Meyer's trying to show you that they're wrong because they're not saying Bella we support your decision they're like get that abomination it's almost like a sort of straw man caricature of what a pro-choice mm. person is as being the yeah. sort of devilish I want to kill kind of figure yeah that's so true okay I completely rescind my yeah. point yeah. no I really like that because they are demonized for it yeah like they're really casted poorly as these like very brutish unforgiving uncaring people not considerate of her feelings yeah and yeah the demonization's a really interesting point and again you have side by side Stephanie Meyer trying to set out this sort of like traditional chaste Christian pro-life narrative and then immediately after having a werewolf fall in love with the baby which is like so uncomfortable so uncomfortable so let's get into that yeah (laughs) pedophilic kind of attachments well there's a there's another scene you see it a lot in the tribes um there's like a scene of i think it's jacob and leia and seth or something they're on the beach and one of the other guys in the pack he's like also imprinted but he's with like the kid that he's imprinted is a little girl and she's like by the water throwing stones and she's like four or five and he's like standing over her and it's really bizarre to see that kind of, he's like, I'll, I'll be anything to you. I'll be your brother. Isn't that what Jacob said? He's like, the, like, yeah. And it, it's, it's so weird. It's so unnecessary. I just, there's so no reason for that to be a storyline. Yeah. Apart from the iconic line of 
you named my daughter yeah, the Loch Ness Monster. She's mine. <laughs> but other than that, there's no yeah. value like added to the story. It's not even like that's a weird one, but I guess it makes sense in yeah. context. Like there just doesn't need to be no. there. So it's odd that she adds it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm assuming if you've got this far in the podcast, you're familiar with the films, but if people haven't seen it, imprinting in that world is where the first time you see someone, you know instantly if you're going to spend the rest of your life with them. So you kind of know if you're in love with someone the second you see them. Uh, (laughs) Jacob, who is this werewolf character, sees Bella's newborn baby and immediately knows that he's in love with her. And it's the weirdest, strangest, creepiest scene I mean, he, he's also so kind of, like, gatekeeping. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it, because yeah. he's get, he gets protective. I don't even know if it's protective. He's just, um, what's the word? Either way, like, he wants to keep her for himself. And, yeah. like, Bella, her mother, like, understandably, like, there's a whole thing of, like, oh, you're a vampire, like, and she's yeah. human, you're not in control. But the whole thing of she holds her daughter for less than two minutes, and then he... He's like, this is too much time, like, give her back now. And it's this kind of weird claim on- ownership, yeah. that's it, ownership rather than yeah. protection over her. It seems like almost in defence of falling in love with young girls. But yeah. at the same time, we're not meant to like the, the Black family at the end of the day. We're not meant to like the werewolves. No. So perhaps it's meant to be a comment against them to further fuel our kind of like distrust of vampires and like yeah. our love for vam- our distrust for werewolves and our love for vampires but yeah. or that family but it just it still seems very bizarre and I can't really figure out what Why? the stance is on it I think it seems like almost neutral yeah which is weird because it shouldn't be a neutral matter but then Bella and Edward have a very pedophilic relationship as yeah. well he's 120 yeah. and she's 17 like why are you hanging out with teenage all of them are really old why are you hanging out with teenagers why do you keep going back to school like I know you'll turn at the age but yeah why are they at school? <laughs> why are they at school again and again I mean, and I guess again I know it's so that they can young, stay in the like, environment for longer but no surely one... they can just pack up and leave every like five or ten years like question it. it's really bizarre yeah like and like you're saying like she's standing in her room watching her and she sleeps and he's this old dude and she's underage like yeah, he's old he's old, old. 120 years old, 120 old. Years old, old. <laughs> i'm sure carlisle could just say he was homeschooling them or something as well like that's yeah. <laughs> it makes so much more sense or like he's training them to be taking over the family business of yeah being a doctor and i feel like also in like such isolated areas of america it's probably not that weird yeah like but it wouldn't make sense for the story no so credit credit to you (laughs) i just remembered another incredibly creepy line um involving jacob and renesme which is where at the end of breaking dawn part two jacob looks at uh edward and says well i guess i'll have to call you dad now oh it's so weird so weird. No, no. <laughs> I think just thinking about like Breaking Dawn Part Two and like the sex. This is just this is kind of not really a segue. It was just on my mind because the iconic scene where Edward and Bella consummate their love oh, and yeah. break the bed. Everything. It's like such a. It's so weird that after all these films of chastity and pushing this agenda yeah. for like no sex. The sex scene isn't just like a regular sex scene. It's like it's over intense. several yeah. periods of time in the films. Yeah. And they're 
extremely intense yeah and I feel like there's there's that kind of there's that weird dichotomy throughout the whole film yeah. like with the imprinting switch. and the kind of weird paedophilic aspects is yeah. that like it seems very sort of pro-young people mm. and like pro-agency and then suddenly it's like no this yeah. this girl is just in love with this 120 year old man that's fine Jacob is in love with this baby mm. and that's like just normal that's that's just in his DNA yeah. Yeah. and then it's like no sex nothing to do with that at all and then Edward and Bella break like, the bed yeah and she's like she's the one that pursues it as well like he like yeah. says no because he's yeah. worried for her but yeah she's she's the really horny one as yeah. well which is like a really interesting like, yeah switch she's really pursuing it girl boss girl boss, boss. <laughs> yeah <laughs> but um but then actually also in Breaking Dawn part two I think when they get the house they gifted the cottage I think it's Emmett who's like oh back so soon or something like that and like Emmett and Rosalie Edward said like they had to be away from them for a decade because they just like were like having sex um, all the time so maybe it's like a thing of like once you're married yeah then like sex is valid free, free, free pass yeah because they're so like repressed and pent yeah. up and, like, yeah. they need an outlet I do love that it's uh like we're vampires we have to stay in the northern hemisphere we can't be near the sun let's go on a honeymoon to brazil it's so funny <laughs> see another just bizarre like opposite yeah. that doesn't really add no. up and having an island isle esme <laughs> <laughs> oh well now that we're, we're talking about um breaking dawn the final two parts of the series I do love that Breaking Dawn Part 2 opens with Kristen Stewart jumping off a cliff and, like, catching a bird and eating it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's such an introduction. Like, even her... But her transition from human to vampire is really interesting, too, I think, because she dies so horribly and she looks awful. Like, I think that's, like, a real credit to the editing as well in Part 1 because she just looks so gaunt she's dying and you can really see it like she looks terrible and then she turns into a vampire and she gets her hair done and like she naturally just has some makeup appear on her face and she gets a boob job and she looks amazing (laughs) and it's just a thing of like a commentary of what like is like perfect beauty and perfection and idolized vampirism I think eternal that's really funny eternal youth yeah she just looks amazing like you can literally see she gets like it looks like her hair's being like blown dried as she's like there, like it just suddenly appears, and you're just like, "How? Why is this happening?" Mm. Better than the wig they use in one of the films. Oh, they use a wig. Maybe I'm completely chatting shit here, but I feel like they use a wig, or just her hair they looks awful do. in one of them. I think it's part one, but I think it's because mm. they shrink her face yeah. on her face and they make her hair really big to make her yeah. look really little because she's like wasting away yeah there's so much cgi on the faces so and, that weird. and the baby the baby the cgi baby just hire and like a child actress <laughs> for god's sake or a toy or a toy it's terrifying oh. i love the bit in breaking dawn part two as well with the like it's really dangerous to have um like vampire kids the last time this happened and then it shows you this flashback where they're throwing a vampire child at a fire and it's exploding <laughs> it's like what <laughs> yeah it's bizarre these films even that's a really like the immortal child like yeah I think the idea of vampires and especially vampires being young, which is like, I guess around Buffy era, there's been quite a lot of 
vampire diaries too was actually at a very similar time to twilight yeah these this romanticization of young vampires mm. who are really old but kind of are look looks wise are about yeah. 18 and then have relationships with a other 16 to 18 yeah. year old as sort of 200 year old figures yeah. um it's such a it's such a classic Lolita fantasy that young woman kind of a trained and sort of shoehorned into mm. um and I guess older men enjoy but I don't think that's necessarily the point for Twilight I think it's no. for older men but I think it's like those thoughts are within us because of patriarchy you know yeah <laughs> classic classic that is very interesting. Just talking about the films, you start to see those darker aspects, those weirder yeah. aspects. Because yeah. it is very unsettling when you look into it. It's easy to just gloss over imprinting and stuff like that, but it's really quite freaky. It's freakier than stuff you'd see in horror films. Yeah. yeah. And it's just passed off as, like, very yeah. normal. Mm. Like, and that, yeah, that is, like, the shocking bit of it, of just yeah, how normalised it is to the narrative and why we didn't pick up on it. Like, I don't understand why... Like, I know, obviously, everyone's kind of, like, looking back with, uh, like, perspective now and, like, reflecting on things more so, but I don't understand why, like, it was just such a given that a teenage werewolf is in love with a baby. Like, so odd. But I think it's it's really nice that, like, we all kind of, as much as we were younger when the saga came out, we were all of a similar generation. Because I think my sister, who's three years older than me, was sort of the perfect age mm. to love it. And I think at a similar time now, but the both of us are able to look back quite critically yeah. in a way that we couldn't when we were reading them no. first. And it's quite endearing is the wrong word because that's quite patronizing. But I think it's it's really nice to to actually visibly see your self-growth and development yeah. as a person, particularly as a young woman. Yeah. And how the, have the tools. Yeah. And like, you know, when you're young, you you play with these dolls and you see these images and you can really internalize that, but you still grow out of it and can yeah. reflect on it. And whilst those probably shouldn't be there in the first place, you can have some awareness of it and yeah. analyze it to the point where we're now like really unpicking yeah. what's so bad about it. Yeah. It's quite interesting to see the, the change. The, yeah, the change. The <laughs> there you go. Twilight more than meets the eye in many ways. And it is, I, I think what I like about social media now, and what's interesting now is that it's almost like everyone of this kind of age, this sort of, zoomer late millennial age is looking back at every single book film tv series they grew up with with a very sort of critical eye a sort of literature criticism aspect because people are doing that with harry potter as well you know for all kinds of reasons obviously because of what we now know about jk rowling and the transphobia um and very much the same is happening with the the, the twilight books and films mm, there's, there's some there's some disturbing aspects to them that <laughs> need to be talked about I thought I'd just wind things up here by talking about how Breaking Dawn Part 2 ends. The spectacular battle scene, which really is spectacular. That's a fantastic scene. Yeah, it is. Like the earthquake and all the characters mm. like contributing. And then it's all like a dream. It's like a future memory. It's such a classic ending of, you know, and, and then she woke up, up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to take it away and have it hanging. The budget for that film was Immense. insane. Yeah. Think of the things they could have done with that budget. Yeah. <laughs> God. But yeah. We got a lot out of it. <laughs> <laughs> and you have the iconic moment of Arrow laughing. Yes. 
Yeah. When he does yeah. that <laughs> laugh. Yeah, the high pitched one. Oh, it's so weird. He he's really odd as well yeah. when you kind of think about Ara's it. Ara's a very scary character. Dictator. Yeah. Machiavellian. Machiavellian, definitely. Very Again, old. very Italian, yeah. that whole thing. I think the Italy the Italians. Yeah. <laughs> the Italy thing is really interesting, I find like Ooh, religious as well. It's super religious. Again, Against super culty. Vatican. Very no Vatican. Volturi. Volturi. Definitely. I, I once saw a YouTube video um describing an interview that Michael Sheen gave. I have tried to look for this interview in vain for years. I've never found it. But apparently when the films were coming out, Michael Sheen gave an interview where they said Oh, you know, we've seen Breaking Dawn Part Two. The way you act in that film, you know, really, it's 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 very flamboyant. What you know, they they make some comment like this, and it's like the takes they used of those of, for those scenes, they're ridiculous. And then Michael Sheen says, "You should see the takes they didn't use." <laughs> and I want to I see. Want to I really <laughs> want to see. Yeah, can you imagine? Oh, Just that as well would have been so, so interesting. Yeah, but also, Christian Schwimm and Robert Patton had broken up by that point. They really hated each other. I think that's what's really funny about Breaking Dawn as well, that they have to play, like, they have so many sex scenes together and they have to play, like, the married couple and, like, parenting and things like that. I don't know if they hate each other. I think a lot of the way they broke up was because of the intense fan. Oh, you think? Yeah. I always got, I can't, I'm not sure, obviously, why they broke up, but I got the feeling that they really kind of resented each other. But maybe that just might be... Um, Robert Patterson's kind of resentment for the franchise rather yeah. than for her. I'm not sure. Yeah, sorry. That's just amusing. <laughs> yeah, okay. no, definitely. The whole film franchise ends with the surprisingly stirring end credit sequence where you get the faces of pretty much everyone who's been in the films. Yeah. Which yeah. W- it works really well, I think, that end sequence. I quite like it. They should have done like where they are now, like yeah. they're doing documentaries. <laughs> Better and Edward. But they provide that with um, Alice's vision of the future yeah. of Renesme being older with Jacob and like them all living together. Like it's such a classic, they live happily ever after thing. Like they've overcome like a hardship. And just like that. And just like that, they're all fine and they're all gonna live a happy life together. I mean, to be fair, that is very Harry Potter, isn't it? It's the same kind of ending. Yeah. 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 They're all adults and it's fine. Yeah, well, Harry Potter also provides that where they are now thing of their kids are on the platform, they've aged, yeah. they've got together. It's that it's like a very interesting. I don't know, I guess, because it's such an intense journey. You do need a little bit of like a where they arrive at, and yeah. like the vision of the future provides that a bit. Although with fan fiction these days, you yeah, anything. Unfortunately, some people took the fan fiction for Twilight too far. Oh God, we got Fifty Shades uh, of Grey. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh, of course. Yeah. Oh my yeah. god. I didn't I completely forgot about that. Love that. Love that. <laughs> Have you two um heard about the Animorphs series, how that ends? No. There is a series of books called Animorphs. I'm just gonna look up the author's name here. This is an interesting one because a lot of these young adult series end very, very happily. And it's like, yay, everyone's fine. This book series called Animorphs, um, it's by H.A. Applegate. This series ends with several of the main characters dying and ending on this big sort of the world's pretty terrible cliffhanger. 
And H.J. Applegate released a letter to all of the readers of the books that was like, I ended it this way because this is how wars do end. It devastates people and ruins societies. And it's like, if you want there to be a happy ending, change the world, write to Paul. And it's like, oh my God, oh my God. children's book series. <laughs> That's quite interesting. Well, yeah, well. <laughs> but also, yeah, that is that is interesting. Wow. I think there's always a desire for things to go back to normal and yeah. probably go into a whole other hour-long podcast about what it means for things to be staying the same and the traditionalist aspect of life. But yeah. I think that um yeah, happily ever after is a very safe space and yeah. allows us to go, everything's sold, we don't have to worry about yeah. it. All the strife in the world was projected onto vampires versus werewolves yeah. and now it's solved so life's great and we can move on and distract ourselves with another franchise yeah about dystopian dystopian you kind of have that in hunger games as well yeah after like this whole like upheaval and revolution and then to like end it with katniss and peter just yeah sitting in a field because you want to inspire their hope, kids but also yeah. you don't want to kind of be complacent and just go yeah. like well this is where we are now yeah the best thing to do is just to like yeah, yeah have kids in a field and yeah a they also again visions of the future of like yeah it's happily ever after as a family and then just sitting and just like vibing with your kid yeah very interesting just a slight correction here it's k-a applegate clearly i can't read individual letters oh. that's the name of the author <laughs> i mean what do you think i know this isn't about twilight this is harry potter again what do you think about the criticism that's made now that um, it ends with Harry becoming a cop, basically? Oh, yeah, because he becomes an aura. Yeah. Um, I'm not really sure what the... Yeah. Uh, what's what's the basis of the criticism? Just that he shouldn't be a, like a kind of A-cab follow-up argument. Is there a specific reason why people don't like it? I think it's partly A-cab, but I think part of it's that, like, it's quite a conservative way to end the book. It's like now we're we're politicians and we're cops and we've joined the sort of hegemonic state yeah. infrastructure, you know. Oh, it's I think that's quite sad. Yeah. It's kind of like a, I feel like that's like the last relinquishment of like youth and childhood, and then to be taken on these really boring, very like office well, not office but you know what I mean, like adult-based ideals of what jobs are and things like that. But then, like, the dark... Because he's such a revolutionary. But the death... I was just going to say, I don't know how revolutionary they are because the Death Eaters are such a... They're so evil. Yeah. They're so bad. Like, it would be a bit bizarre if you weren't against them. And I know that there's, like, other characters, like Umbridge and when... um, Blank on the names, but when some of the people within the ministry kind of join their side. Like, and even, like, some of the Death Eaters, I suppose, can seem more um yeah normal but like also really bad but like it's just it, I'm I wasn't surprised that he kind of gives it up it was like he wasn't going against the grain he was going no. against a very particular awful awful ideology Person, yeah. but in in defense of the grain like he, mm. they were trying to protect what was normal already and they were quite yeah they were I don't know they were protecting the tradition of yeah. like yeah of keeping things the status quo the they're, status they're protecting quo, the status yeah. quo against Voldemort in the way that yeah. superhero films protect the status quo against an alien figure yeah I guess it's also like something thrust upon Harry like he he mm. wasn't kind of like like he didn't elect himself to kind of go and be the revolutionary figure like it was an identity that was forced upon him yeah and maybe he just wanted to kind of step back and yeah 
well those seven years would be very traumatic yeah but still I think I think that's also a good criticism about how he just kind of stops he just stops yeah but then also what is there to do after you've had such like a massive like what is being a wizard? What do you do as a wizard? What do you do as a wizard? <laughs> but it's the thing of like peaking too early, like <laughs> one hit wonder, one hit wonder, like and not the Harry Potter child star. <laughs> yeah, yep. But not only, again, because I think it's our best say. But then he actually has just peaked too early. Yeah. Like he, he peaked in high school. It's like the bit in when Hermione's like, "You're really going out with you because I think you're the chosen one," and he's like, "Hermione, I, I am, am the chosen one." one yeah Harry's gonna be on like the wizarding equivalent of i'm a celebrity get me out of here or something that's his future yes oh, gonna be presenting love island oh, <laughs> <laughs> that'd be great oh. that'd be really funny just to get final thoughts on the twilight series if both of you had to pick a favorite film which one would it be twilight <laughs> first one um i'm really torn i think i prefer new moon Mm, I like I, I like I like the narrative a lot more there's a lot more Jacob in there I find Edward a little bit annoying the school's great all of that's really fun but I really really like the Breaking Dawns I think they're hilarious <laughs> they're so funny so conflicted between the two okay I appreciate you've gone for the most emo entries in the series like just the most flat out emo the first two <laughs> that that first film it came out in 2008 paramore did the music for it it's all eyeliner and it's like the most emo of its time film it's like a myspace time capsule they wear a lot of makeup they're so pale in that one like obviously they're pale in all of them but actually like if you look at the long sleeves like I just think about like Jasper's hair and like his gaunt look and like Rosalie's makeup and all of that they are so like yeah paint they're like dolls yeah even the characters like the humans yeah they are pretty emo too yeah they're all they're very grungy Bella's very grungy the clothes as well it's so like noughties yeah the dress yeah. the blue dress yeah i'm not like other girls no very <laughs> a converse to prom oh she, she does wear like converse to prom, to prom. <laughs> oh my gosh i think oh, that not like the other girls phrase is a perfect description yeah. she, she says that she says it in yeah. twilight at the beginning she's like i mean like her whole thing about like dying in the face of another person blah, 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 all that rap, rap. but um <laughs> she her thing as well is that she's like oh, i've never like related to anyone i've always been one step out of like other people i've never yeah i've not I've, I, yeah i'm not related mm-hmm. and i think that and that's why she like appeals so much to edward and the vampires because she's like oh my god i belong this is this and is who i was meant to be why she appeals to a young female audience because yeah, we all feel the, a little bit outside yeah like oh, i'm the social friends. yeah like, Social rejects, social rejects. I just want a man to come no one understands identity. Yes. Is, is, is Twilight where that phrase comes from then, not one of the other girls? Is that a Twilight? I'm sure it's in part. Yeah, it must be. It's a very, like, that's the time in which the Not Like Other Girls narrative came around and then Fueled by John Green. Oh, God. Oh, no. <laughs> Yo. I feel like there's so much to all these, like, teen films that, in, like, the, like, the tens that, really need to be unpacked yeah i think we've and got we're a lot so of we really to all of us yeah i'm and blaming actually, everything <laughs> on alaska yeah. <laughs> god just 
yeah all <laughs> the time I just think it's so interesting that that was just and we were just being force-fed these narratives so yeah. much we just wanted them and they were coming yeah. out every year but I guess it's like more. life imitates art like would they have been so successful if those thoughts weren't already there no, or did well, they exactly. create those thoughts um I think yeah in, in the episode that I did with uh, Lucy Carter a little while ago, we talked about coming of age films and we just talked about the impact John Green and the sort of not like the other girls trope has had on yeah. every single coming of age film that's come out since. Like even stuff like Lady Bird, which everyone loves, very much fits in. Like she is yeah. a classic not like the other girls character. And I think it's really interesting that it was on the one hand impacted by perhaps John Green and those films, but then also like it's, Greta Gerwig has said it's often like, it's loosely based on her own life and she's obviously older than us. So the Not Like Other Girls feeling has been around for a very long time. <laughs> so it's like, I guess maybe those feelings have always been there and they've yeah. just exacerbated it by realizing they could really monetize yeah, on that anxiety. I remember there's like there's a Bo narrative. Burnham song about like criticizing like male singers for like telling young girls like how beautiful they are, but then they read magazines that like, uh, are tell, telling them that they're like they should be skinnier, should be uglier. But then, mm. then they then they listen to the men sing songs about how beautiful they are. But then the men are on the cover of the magazine, so they buy the magazine. So it's like this vicious cycle, and they oh. feel like of like oh hating themselves. Then because they buy the magazines, listen to the music, and feeling better. But then buying the magazines again because they have Justin Bieber or yeah. whatever on the front cover. And I feel like it's the same thing, not like other girls, where it's like so we watch that, internalize it and then keep on watching them because we, we only feel seen in yeah. those films and it's just like it gets smaller and smaller. smaller. And then it's, I feel it's, has it exploded yet? Have they ended? I don't think they Will have. they go? Please. Oh <laughs> I am like other girls. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be. I guess the death of girl as well. Yeah. We could go on for hours for this one. <laughs> well, it's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much to both of you for joining uh, the podcast today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it was so, I had a great so, time. so, so fun. Yeah, this was great. Thank you, Frank. You're both welcome back on anytime you want. Absolutely. This has been a fantastic episode. Um, would either of you like to recommend your social media accounts? Um, yes, please. I will plug my uh, four social media accounts. I am at the Boar Arts on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. So please give us a follow and a like. Brilliant. All right, everyone, thank you for listening. As always, this has been the Ball Film Podcast. There will be another episode out this time next week. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Goodbye and stay safe.